We're going to be in Psalm 7, if you want to flip there in your Bibles and follow along. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rendering it to pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing to the name of the Lord, the Most High. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you have been the victim of slander? How many of you have had false accusations spoken about you, maybe claiming that you said something that you didn't say, maybe saying that you did something that you didn't do, or perhaps even worse than that is people saying that you're a kind of person that you really aren't. Some of you may even experience something a little more deliberate where there was an actual kind of collaboration of different people behind your back to smear your reputation, maybe in the workplace, maybe in a a neighborhood council, HOA type of situation, and your reputation at least with some people, was destroyed by lies. And I'm curious how you felt when that happened. I'm curious how you feel even now having it brought up again and kind of probably picking at some painful memories. Like the psalmist says here, it hurts. Like the psalmist says here, it can feel like your, your soul, something of your person is being ripped apart like by wild animals. The psalmist says here, False accusations are unfair. The damage done to your reputation is unfair. The the losses that you experience, particularly the loss of friends that you thought you could count on, but you couldn't, is unfair. Slander forces you to reap a world of consequences that were deliberately sown into your life by someone else. And it's excruciating. I wonder when 
you find out, again, maybe it's in the workplace, maybe it's where you live, maybe it's been even with a, a family member in the past or a former friend or a school situation of peers. But when you find that someone is falsely accusing you, what is your instinctive reaction? Like when you find out that person or those people are running you down and it's not even true, like if you're anything like me, I'll just confess, like I get angry about that. I want to kind of like marshal all the facts and present them to people who would be willing to listen of like, that is not true. I can show you that something is true and I can prove that I'm innocent of those things, but it doesn't really work, does it? It doesn't work as well as you would hope. A couple weeks ago, we were up at the family reunion in Grand Lake and we were hiking this trail, Tanuwatu Creek where a couple years ago, October 21st, the East Troublesome Fire swept through this whole area. So we're hiking this trail, and you can put this picture up, because this whole section of the forest where the fire had swept through on this one night, it's like every single tree looked like a standing piece of giant lump charcoal. And the, the ground, everything down here, had just been burned to dust. That's how hot it's burning. And we walked for several miles along this forest. And it was, I mean, it's beautiful in a, in a weird sort of way with all these new wildflowers beginning to grow all over the place. But you, you see the damage and you just think, like, it's, it's not just going to be a few years. It's going to be a generation before this forest ever feels like something like what it felt just two years ago at this same time. And I was thinking as we walked along that trail, it's incredible that this 200,000 acres has been completely devastated, incinerated by a fire that started at a single point of origin more than 25 miles away. And actually, the epistle, the letter of James says that gossip and slander are like that. It's like a fire that just rages and spreads. And even if someone that, that were spreading that fire of slander wanted to go back and fix things after the fact, it's like fixing that. How do you, how do you fix something like that that you've burned to the ground? Where do you even begin? For those who have been hurt by false accusations, Psalm 7 is for you. And I want to hear you, or I want you to hear that, that God cares this psalm says slander, false accusations, are a gross injustice, but God is a God of justice. And what I take away from this psalm, I want to say at the outset, which is the psalmist basically coming to the conclusion, I don't have to just be frustrated and angry and, and simmering with bitterness toward the people that have done this to me. I, I don't need to just go fight to set the record straight and constantly be chasing after anyone and everyone that, that may possibly know an untruth. But we can actually trust God ultimately to do right. We can actually rejoice in God that he is a God of justice. And this psalm is about how do you react to being falsely accused. So something very practical this morning in this particular psalm. I'm going to show you three things that this psalm shows us. Number one, we're going to see a context demanding justice. That's verses 1 and 2. Then we'll see the certainty of justice, verses 3 through 16. And then we'll see the congruous response to justice, verse 17, which is like what reaction on my part fits everything else that this psalm says, okay? 
So notice, first of all, verses 1 and 2, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab the introduction as well. So you may not know this, but those little words sometimes in all capital letters before verse 1, those verse designations didn't used to be there. And, and much like you may write a letter to a friend and put like a subject line in an email, <laughs> these are kind of like the subject lines of the email. And what we see here, the context, David is crying out to God, and he's kind of, he's lamenting, he's complaining to God, and he's saying, God, I'm in a situation that's unfair and unjust, because this person mentioned in the introduction, someone named Cush, a Benjaminite, has falsely accused David, and either he or someone else is now pursuing David to try to kill him as a result of slander. Now, we don't know anything else about this Cush, the Benjaminite. We don't know exactly why was he after David? Why did he lie about David? What lie did he tell? I think historically we can, we can surmise a couple things. Did you know the, the first king of Israel, a man named Saul, was also a Benjaminite? So it's very possible that now People that were loyal to Saul sees David from the tribe of Judah coming to the throne uh, kind of unexpectedly as a little shepherd boy who was not in the right family tree to be the next king. And it's very much possible that people loyal to Saul, the Benjaminite, were falsely accusing David of somehow usurping the throne unlawfully, of not being God's choice for Israel. Whatever the specifics are, Cush is slandering David. He's claiming that he's guilty of something worthy of death. Other people have bought into this lie, and they're pursuing David to kill him. Now, one of my takeaways is David just says, he's lying, I'm innocent. So if someone's lying about you, I mean, on the authority of Scripture, it's okay to say, that's not true. It's not like it's wrong to stand up for yourself and say, as David does, in the integrity of my heart on this issue, that is not right, that is not fair. But you see David not just looking to himself in a kind of a self-defensive posture. Actually, what he's doing with the bulk of this psalm is he's crying out and he's saying, I need an impartial judge who can come into my situation, who can listen to the two sides, who can look at historic facts and can make a ruling in my favor and execute justice on my behalf, okay? So the, the bulk of this psalm now, verses 3 through 16, are going to reflect on David's confidence in the certainty of justice, point two. Now, this is interesting because if you wanted to study justice, and there are all kinds of you know, philosophers and theologians and legal people who have written a lot about justice over the years, but this is a fascinating study on justice because David mentions not one, not two, but actually three different sources or, or forms of justice. Chronologically, verses 3 through 5, he mentions relational justice. Verses 6 through 13, he mentions divine justice. And then verses 14 through 16, he mentions natural justice. And I want to unpack those a little bit, each one of those, explain what they are, why David's relying on them to work in his situation and I'll take them in a little bit different order, starting with natural justice, verses 14 through 16. And notice in those verses, first of all, the wicked is portrayed, and this is kind of an interesting picture. He's like, they are pregnant with mischief. Like this mischief, because they haven't repented of it, this trouble that they want to cause others, it's like something growing inside them. And it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And he's like, they're pregnant with it, and they're going to give birth to all this trouble to other people. 
But, but the natural justice part of it is notice he says, verse 16, that mischief that they are festering and growing and building within themselves is actually going to come back on their own head. He says this, this person or these people intend to deceive and harm other people, but the violence falls on his own skull, he says. Another interesting picture in verse 15, he says, he makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. It's the picture of a hunter who is digging a hole in the forest, and you may have seen these. Dig a big pit in the forest, and then cover it with like loose branches, and then kind of cover those branches with leaves. So the animal's coming along, do to do, you know, and doesn't like just that part of the ground looks like every other part of the ground. And they step there, and the, the leaves give way, and the twigs break, and they've fallen into the pit. And the picture is this evil person who is slandering him has dug this pit, has covered it up, has, has masked it, made it look true and then falls in their own pit, is trapped by their own lies. Now, the Bible often refers to this as the law of sowing and reaping. You've probably heard that. Like, you sow something into someone else's life, you're going to reap the very kinds of things that you've sown. And uh, the principle is stated plainly in Galatians 6, verse 7, where Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, that will he also reap. Um, by the way, if you're familiar with other world religions, Hinduism and Buddhism call this karma. Like you give something out and just in the natural way that the world tends to work, it's going to come back to you. So if you're doing good to others, the thing that tends to come back is good. But if you're doing harm to others, if you're lying about others, if you're deceiving, the things that tend to come back are pretty negative. Or secularism just calls it cause and effect. This is how our world tends to work. I'm just saying, whatever you call it, this is the way justice tends to work. Even in a broken world, our actions have natural consequences. So what he's saying here in context is you slander and attack someone else because you envy them or you hate them or you want to see them fail or whatever. And he says the object of your lies, which in this case is David, will suffer tremendous harm. But eventually so will you. Because when other people start to figure out oh, you actually lied about that person. And we start to understand your motives are actually, you wanted their position. You envied them. You just despised them in their heart because of what they stood for, which is different than what you stood. Like whatever your reasons, as you get exposed as someone who's a gossip and a slanderer, someone who can't be trusted, then there are negative repercussions for you. And it's not because someone's out to get you. It's just because that's how our world tends to work. And that's what he's saying here. Verses 14 through 16. By the way, I shared an example a couple weeks ago of, of this in Scripture where the Persian official named Haman despised the Jews. He was jealous. He was envious of this man named Mordecai who was a Jew. So he's like, I'm going to go build a gallows. I'm going to trick the king of Persia to hang Mordecai on this gallows, then I get rid of my enemy. And the way it just naturally comes back to him and the way that things got discovered and worked out is he ends up getting hung and executed on his own gallows. That's natural justice. Okay, the second form of justice, and I'm jumping back to verses three through five. There's no great term for it, but I'll call it relational justice. Let me read these verses again. David says, if I have done this thing, 
If there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, then let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let them trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. And all he's saying is, again, this is the way the world works. He's like, yeah, if I wronged these people, then they're, they're going to be furious and I, I deserve what's coming to me. You know, our world calls this revenge or vengeance. And it's just that simple. You know, a general principle is like, if you slap someone, they may very well just slap you back. If you pick a fight with someone, they may fight back to simply defend themselves. You know, narcissists, which are people we deal with from time to time, it's like others will put up with your egotistical, self-serving, destructive lies and nitpicky attacks and gaslighting and all that. They will put up with it and put up with it and put up with it and put up with it. And finally, they will snap and say, no more. And at that moment, you know, you may posture yourself as like, I'm the victim. And like, it's, it's like, no, you're not the victim. You're the provocateur. And this person finally got fed up with the lies, with everything being about you. And there's a counterpunch, okay? Our culture calls this, this could be called quid, quid pro quo, or sometimes we have the expression like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Um, I do want to say under this point, um, God explicitly tells Jesus' followers, don't seek revenge, okay? He says, vengeance is mine. That belongs to me. I will repay the people who are doing these things to you. So I'm not encouraging you. David is not encouraging you. Notice, notice he's not saying like, I will get my revenge. He's actually, he's flipped it around. He said, if in fact I did those things to you, then you have every right to take revenge on me. So I'm not encouraging revenge. I'm simply pointing out in this Psalm that even in a broken world where justice is endemic and even systems of injustice are endemic, things aren't as bad as they could be because we have natural justice. Things often don't go as the person planned who is victimizing someone else. There are natural and just consequences for our sin. And people tend to demand justice when they are on the receiving end of a wrong. But all of that ultimately brings us to this third form of justice and the one that David says, this is my true hope, and that is divine justice, verses 6 through 13. Okay, I'm not going to go line for line, but I do want to point out kind of three attributes or three statements about God's justice to summarize what David is saying here. First of all, notice God's justice is rooted in God's character. So multiple times here, David is saying, you are a righteous God. You are a righteous judge. The reason I can count on you in my life to do the right thing is because you are right. And that word righteous or righteousness means conformity to a standard. Like the standard flows from the essence of God's character. God gives his people his standard, like the Ten Commandments. And then you can count on God to do the right thing according to that standard because in his essence, in his nature, he is righteous. He loves justice. He goes on here in verse 17 to say, you are the most high God. Some of you are familiar with the name El Elyon. That's this name. The idea of like the most high God means he's supreme, means he's sovereign. 
And I love this, that you start putting this together and you're like, if God is righteous and God is supreme and sovereign and there's no one above him or even beside him, then what David is saying is, I can trust you for justice because you are right, you want to do right, and no one can stop you from doing right. So David is encouraged by this. God's justice is rooted in God's character. Uh, By the way, this is such good news for us because you know in the broken world we live in, there are judges that are prejudiced in some way or another. And they may know mentally this is the right thing to rule, this is the right application of these laws, but, and I'm not saying they're literally being bribed, though that does happen in some cultures, but they just have natural prejudices and brokenness. And you may go into their court and you're like, I know all the facts support my side, but I don't trust this judge and his track record to actually do the right thing. And that's a very helpless thing to feel. David actually feels the opposite with God. He's like, he is so unbelievably reliable because he is right and he is sovereign and he will do right eventually by me. Second thing we see about divine justice is that God's justice is actually a defense for the righteous. So when David says here, God, I want you to reward me according to my integrity, according to my righteousness, let's understand what he is and is not saying. He's not saying, God, look at the totality of my life. See that I have made zero mistakes, zilch. I am awesome and reward me accordingly. What he's saying is in this context, with the accusations of this man named Cush, he says, God, see my integrity in this matter and rule righteously in this matter, okay? Is God's judgment something that scares you or excites you? Like if you think like the judgment of God, are you like, yay, I'm so excited for that time when he is just, or are you like, eh, I don't know that I'm excited about that. And I think we'd probably all naturally be like, that's a crazy question. Like, of course it's terrifying. Like if there's really a God and he really sees everything and knows everything, including the thoughts and intents of my heart that I don't express, because sometimes we're wise enough to hold back on like, I probably should not say that or do that, but man, I'd love to kill you if I could get away with it, right? (laughs) Um, But God knows that I I would love to kill you if I could get away with it. So is God's judgment something that scares you or something that excites you? Let me say it a little bit differently. If you went into a court knowing you were guilty of a crime, serious crime, or you could say it's a civil court, but you're going into a civil court knowing that you did wrong or you made a huge mistake and you owe significant damages to this other party, you would be afraid of justice, right? Because you'd be like, if, if the judge actually rules in a way or the jury rules in a way that is just and I get what's due to me, what's due to me is serious punishment or serious consequences. And you would fear justice. You would be opposed in a sense to justice. But let's flip that around to to be kind of like David in this situation. What if you went into court knowing you were innocent, knowing the wrong was done to you and you were actually owed substantial damages from someone else who had wronged you. And you knew the track record of this particular judge that he was, he was righteous, he was just, he could not be bought off. And he's done his homework to dig into your case and get a clear picture of the wrongs that have been done against you. 
Let me ask the question again. Would you be excited to go into that courtroom and hear a verdict? You would. You'd be thrilled because you would know, I, like, I have bled out so much pain, money, trauma, and finally someone's going to stand in my defense and say, enough is enough. This person is going to suffer consequences for the wrong that they did to you. Well, that is the exact ethos of much of this psalm. And you notice David is like, God is my defense. God is my shelter. And he pictures both like a defensive battle that God is doing on his behalf and an offensive battle. So you notice defensively, like verse 1 and verse 10, he's like, God is my shield. God is my refuge. So it's like, as those darts are coming at me, those arrows, those swords of the enemy, God is like, no, I'm protecting you in a defensive posture. But more than that, like you flip back to verses 12 and 13, a sword, a bow, deadly weapons, arrows, those are not defensive weapons. Those are offensive weapons. And he's like, I actually trust God to go on the offensive on my behalf and seek justice on my behalf. And that, again, is this point that David is preaching to us and preaching to his own soul, which is God's justice is a defense for the righteous. If you walk with God in righteousness, if you walk with God in the integrity of your heart, if you walk with God in humility, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about an honest pattern of recognizing your own brokenness and repenting of it and confessing it and changing, then you don't have to fear God's justice because his justice is actually for you. That's such good news. Finally, it's important that we notice about justice that God's justice is unfinished. There's a famous line that says, justice delayed is justice denied. Some of you may even have experienced this where you, you're like, I am the innocent party. I am the victim of a crime. Or I am the, the victim of something that was wrongly done against me. And this person owes me. And the, the, the more like we're in a situation right now where it's like the, the judge in a civil trial is like, this other party needs some more time. They want more time to prepare their case. So I'm going to move your trial from January to September. And so for like that nine months, you're like, what in the world? Like, uh, we're going to win. It's kind of like this. It's like we're innocent and something was done wrong to us. A contract was broken and we suffer all the consequences. And you're like, why? And do you ever feel that way? Not just with human judges, but with God, where you're like, God, if you're so good, and loving and just and and you see everything and you know everything and you're all powerful and you say you're going to make things right why don't you immediately expose the slanderers like just like a voice from heaven of like or a shekinah glory light coming down of like i'm with this person you know you're this is the bad person they lied like, why, why, why don't you do stuff like that in real time? And I know on the authority of Scripture, one of the Bible's answers is, which I hope you can appreciate, because God is patient and kind with sinful people. And I know when I'm on the giving end of that, like not lying about someone, but like misrepresenting by not saying everything that's true, or I'm on the giving end of a sin or the giving end of wronging or hurting someone else, I know I'm grateful for God's patience. God is giving those people that hurt you an opportunity to repent 
which I think as followers of Jesus, we should all desire. Not just that just God just comes down and instantly just crushes those people that hurt you and just pounds them to dust. Because again, when you're on the other side, you're like, God, I want grace. I want your long-suffering, forbearance, patience, forgiveness. Do you desire that for your enemies? Do you desire that for people who hurt you to actually be reconciled to God and to you as brothers and sisters in Christ? That would be an amazing thing. So God is patient, but the fact remains, look at verse 7, there is a perfect, final, inescapable justice that's coming. Verse 7 says, let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you over it or over them Return on high, the Lord judges the peoples. And peoples, peoples, it's like the nations, all the people groups, all the races, all the ethnic tribes of people all over the world. That's what's being pictured there. So David's picturing this future day when he's like all the nations, all the peoples, all the groups, geographically, they're all gathered together. And he says, notice, you return on high. Like this position of authority, this position of power, the position of the judge. And he says, I trust you, God, on that day. And he uses two words here. First of all, I trust you to decide between right and wrong and to do it according to your perfect standard. And I trust you to execute justice. Okay. None of us get perfect justice in this life because this life is not the final chapter of our story. As Christians... As followers of Jesus, we should be the most patient, the most like, quick to forgive, but also the most at rest people in our own soul about the wrongs done to us because we're like, God, I trust you. There's an ultimate final justice and you will either save that person and forgive them as you've forgiven me, which would be amazing, or you will take better revenge a just revenge, a righteous revenge, a good revenge than I could ever dream of doing. So I can leave it either way. I can leave it in your hands. That's what he's saying here with divine justice, okay? Now, verse 17, basically one verse here, and I'll look back just momentarily, the congruous response. So basically what David is saying in verse 17 is, if I believe everything that I just said, and again, notice he's protesting his innocence. He's saying, that is a lie. That person, Cush, the Benjaminite, he's a liar. Okay? I don't deserve this. This is unfair. This is unjust. Ultimately, I'm hoping in God. Here's what God will do for me, at least eventually. And the question is, okay, how can you and I respond when we've been hurt by slander, by false accusations, by the wrongdoing of other people, if we believe this stuff about God? And before I come to that, I want to shift it just slightly and say, if you believe God is a good judge, is a just judge, is a judge who knows everything, not just about those people that wronged you, but also about you, okay? There's a scary thing in here of like, notice where he says, you discern, you test the thoughts and intents of people's hearts. So if God's doing that to you, not just to them, what hope do you have? If God's looking at your heart and saying, well, what thoughts and intents do you have? Do you ever hate your brother or sister? you ever get overly worked up at that person and you want to wrong them or you actually do wrong them? 
I mean, really the question I'm asking now is if we're all guilty of many things, what hope is there for any of us if God is a just judge? Well, look first at verse 12, actually. Because the first thing, I'm going to give you three one-word congruous responses to God's justice. The first is repent. Don't miss the conditional nature of verse 12. What's the first word? If. If a man, if a person does not repent, God will whet his sword in judgment. Well, what's the clear implication? It says, if you don't repent, there's judgment coming to you. The clear implication is, if you do repent, there is not judgment. God is not going to whet this sword and bring it in judgment. That's great news because we've all sinned. We've all missed the mark. We've all fallen short of what God requires with our lives. And unfortunately, we don't have a mechanism of just going back and fixing stuff. You know, it's like, it's like this forest and the picture's not still up here, but you saw it earlier. It's, it's not like, oh, I'm the guy that left the campfire burning. Um, sorry about that. Are we good now? And it's like, no, you burned down 400 homes, actually. Two people died as a result of that fire. We don't have a mechanism in this broken world to simply go back and be like, uh, well, I'll, I'll make it up somehow. What we do have is the gift of repentance that God has given us. So the call here is not like, you know those, you know the politicians that are like raging against like carbon emissions and all that, and they're, they're raging about it while they fly all over the world in their private jet? which is emitting tons and tons of carbon into the atmosphere. So they, what do they do? They, they buy carbon offsets, right? So it's like, I know I'm trashing the atmosphere with my private jet, but I'm, I'm making a contribution over here to offset that. Well, we don't, we don't have that in life, not in real life, not, not in terms of how we stand before. It's not like I messed up over here, but I'm buying an offset over here. Again, what we have is the gift of repentance. And the word that he uses here when he says, if a man does not repent, he's saying, if a man does not confess his sin, turn around and change. You know, repentance is not just like, oh God, uh, like I did this thing, like so sorry, please forgive me. That's like, that's asking for forgiveness. Repentance implies a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction. And we have this gift that God empowers to actually turn around and do something different, think differently because of his power at work in us. So repent. The second congruous response is trust, verses 1 and 10. And I asked earlier what you feel like when those accusations are raining down on you and your life is being ripped to pieces and you're like, I'm losing all these things unfairly. It's unjust. It's, these friends just walked away believing lies. Like they know me better than that. And you feel that pain. And when your reputation is being destroyed unfairly, again, it can be a very natural thing to just like stick up for yourself. Let me ask it this way. What is your place of safety, comfort, and rest when you're falsely accused or when you're experiencing trouble at the hands of someone else? What is your place of safety, comfort, and rest? Is it defending yourself? Is it more of a flight posture of like, I'm just out of here. I'm just going to go start over somewhere else. I can't make this right. It's just so unfair. Or thirdly, are you hoping that like the people that are in the know are going to stick up for you? And, and things will be fine. Well, look again at verse 1, because David had those options available to himself as well. 
But verse 1, he says, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Verse 10, he says, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. These, inver- these verses encourage us not to put our hope, our trust in our own self-defense, but to say, Lord, you are my shelter. You are my protection. And, and there's even this picture of him spreading this protective blanket over us. Okay? In the big picture, I was asking this a moment ago, how does any of us stand before a righteous judge? If God knows what we've done, he's no- he knows what we've left undone, He knows what we're thinking. God tests the minds and hearts, verse 9 of everyone. It says he's he's angry at sin. He's indignant every day. Like what makes us think that that anger and indignation is not sometimes pointed at us for the things that we're doing to hurt other people? Let me give you this little clue here. So verse 7 that I mentioned before of this final judgment, it says, God will return to judge all the peoples and nations. It says he'll return to judge. It says he'll return because what? Because he's been here before. The word return implies like you've been here before. And when Jesus was here the first time, he wasn't lifted up to judge the nations and peoples. He was lifted up to be judged by and for the people and nations. He was lifted up on a cross. And instead of him being the one that executes judgment, the judgment is coming down on him. Okay, so what we celebrate as followers of Jesus is there's, there's a literal day in history about 2,000 years ago where God, Jesus, is perfect. But instead of just coming as a judge, just right out of the blue saying, I'm done with all your sin. I'm going to wipe you out because you're all guilty. He actually comes first as a savior. He comes as a suffering servant and he puts himself on a cross. And when he's lifted up above the nations... The fiery arrows of God's judgment that are promised in this psalm actually come down on him. He's actually the one bearing all of that punishment that you and I and your abusers and liars deserve. So in this light, the words, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge, save me and deliver me, take on a whole new meaning. Because we're saying, I'm not just the victim of false accusations. I've also done wrong toward you, God, and toward other people. How am I saved from your justice except by hiding myself in Jesus, repenting of my sin, but trusting that you have a covering for me because you've taken the punishment, you've taken the justice that my sin deserves. And then finally, praise. So repent, trust, praise, verse 17. He's like, if God's perfection and his justice are no longer to be feared because they're no longer against me, but they're actually for me, if if every sin that I've committed is covered by the grace of God in Christ, and every sin that's been committed against me will either be covered by the grace of Christ or it will be dealt with by an all-knowing God, then where does that leave us? It leaves us with verse 17 where he's like, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. He's saying we can praise God even for his righteousness because his righteousness in Jesus is not against you, it's for you. 
In Christ, you are not seen as guilty. You're seen as innocent. And again, because he's the most high God, nobody can stop him from giving his gift of grace to you if you want to receive it. And I would say if you've never done this, you can do this right now. You can, you can go from a position of like, well, I don't know. I hope I've been good enough, but I probably haven't. Who knows? To this position of, yeah, I know I've fallen short. I've sinned. I've hurt other people. I've not loved God the way that he's called me to love him. I've not loved others as I've been called to love them. I've actually hurt people. But even today, you can take those three things I just said. You can repent. You can say, God, I confess that I'm, I'm broken. I've hurt you. I've hurt others. I deserve justice, but I, I don't hope in justice because that would not go well for me. I, I hope in Jesus. I trust that he would spread his shelter and covering over me to forgive me, to reconcile me, to set me free, and now I can praise. And you can just pray a very simple prayer this morning and just say, Lord, I confess that I'm broken and I want to receive you in my life as my one and only shelter. My one and only place of safety, comfort, and rest is in the person and work of your son, Jesus. And then you're free to praise. And that's how we can land on this theme, that the justice of God is actually a delight, a delight to victims of injustice. And you can think of it this way in closing. Some people will say that you're guilty when you're actually innocent. You will let people know you are innocent when you're actually innocent. You may sometimes confess you're guilty when you're actually guilty, but through Christ, you're declared innocent even though you're actually guilty. That's the power of his grace, that his justice flips from being against you to being for you. So as we ask the question, how do I end up on God's good side? He's not like, work, 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 be self-righteous, do these things, be proud. He's like, humble yourself, confess your wrongdoing, hide yourself in me, and rejoice.